And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. My guest, legal scholar James Kwok, has co-authored with celebrated defense attorney Stephen B. Bright a book that best-selling author John Grisham calls A Clear and Poignant Indictment of Criminal Injustice in America. The book is titled The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. It's an examination of the many ways in which the poor and people of color have often been ill-served by the criminal justice system, of how there are systemic issues that remain in place and certain pockets of the criminal justice system that seem to be entrenched in deeply troubling practices of the past. The book also offers some thoughts on how we can move forward and gain further progress on these fronts. James Kwok is immediate past chair of the Southern Center for Human Rights, a former professor of law at the University of Connecticut, and the author of several previous books, including the New York Times bestseller, 13 Bankers. This new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, is published by The New Press. Uh, ahead of us talking about uh, these weighty matters, uh, I hope you'll permit me uh, one somewhat personal question. I couldn't help but notice as I read more thoroughly about your background that you also have background uh as a quite accomplished classical musician. I wonder if you could just uh, explain to our listeners uh, this kind of complicated part of your own background, and, and not just your background, but your present, because you are a very active classical musician, and at the same time, of course, the heart and soul of your professional life has been taken up with matters of the law. Could you just speak yeah. for a moment about uh, kind of the juxtaposition of these two sharply contrasting worlds uh, in, in your life? Of course. Thanks very much uh, for the question. I was, you know, I, I played cello as a child. I, music was my passion and my love. Um, so I played a lot in, in high school, and I attended the pre-college program at the Juilliard School of Music. But one thing about going to Juilliard is I knew there were many cellists who were much better than I was. <laughs> so I knew I would never be a, you know, a famous soloist. And I went to college and I pursued other things. And uh, in the past 10 years, I've had the time to come back to playing music. Um, and it's really, you know, one of the great joys of my, of my life. I'm not sure I would say I'm, I'm all that accomplished, but I do um, play in some um, orchestras here. And, you know, we just had concerts for the past two nights. And it's, it's really, I'll say two things more. I mean, one is that I think it is, it's a great privilege I have to be able to do a number of different things uh, that I have the you know the time and the the ability to to do different things because I think it's uh, very good to have you know a balance in the kinds of things that you do and uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that you know I don't want to go through my whole biography but I've also I've changed you know I've changed directions I've changed careers a couple of times again I've been fortunate not many people have the ability to do that but. I think it has, uh, first of all, you know, I've enjoyed it a lot, and I think being able to do a number of different things has, you know, has given me new perspectives when I take up a new field or go into a new, uh, go into a new direction. So, yeah, it's it's been, you know, music has always been a big part of my life, um, either, you know, for, for maybe 20 years, I mainly just listened to music, but I'm glad to be able to be playing again. Very good. Tell us what drew you uh, in the first place 
to the law. And then I'm very anxious to know about at, at what point you started to become very specifically concerned about some of the issues related to the law that you take up in your book, The Fear of Too Much Justice. Yeah. So um, thanks for the question. Again, so I, I'm going to have to talk a little bit about my biography. I was in the business world for a while. I was worked for a software company. And I was going tired of that, um, partly because I mean, the reason I decided to go to law school was one thing was I wanted to do something that was you know, intellectually stimulating and challenging. But more importantly, uh, it's an old cliche, but I, you know, I wanted to help people. I felt like I decided to go to law school during the, the George W. Bush administration. And at the time, you know, a couple of the big issues that were, that were appearing on the legal scene, one was wrongful convictions, because this was the first, kind of the first decade, decade of DNA exoneration. So it was becoming more and more clear that uh, you know people were being convicted unfairly. Uh, I mean, not just unfairly, but uh, wrongly. And the other thing that came up at this time was the Guantanamo Bay and the, you know the realization that our country was torturing people. And the people who were fighting back against Guantanamo and illegal detention and torture were lawyers and law So I went to law school um, inspired by those kinds of issues. Uh, while in law school, I decided to become a professor for personal reasons and other reasons. Um, but, you know, my motivation has always been that, you know, if you are a lawyer or a law professor, if you have this training and you have the ability to help, I don't know, combat injustice, I can't think of better words than that, then um, one should do so. And I'll say that the the specific interest in and these kinds of topics that we talk about in the book, death penalty, racial discrimination, and jury selection, um, the right to counsel, and so on, I was directly motivated by the fact that uh, Steve Bright was one of my professors in law school. So um, I took his, one of his classes. I worked in a clinic with him where we worked on death penalty cases, and we've stayed in touch over the years. Uh, the Southern Center for Human Rights, of which I'm on a board member, is an organization that Steve was the executive director of, for about 25 years. So that's how I became more intimately involved in the particular issues that we discuss in the book. Mm. So tell us a, a, a bit about the kind of the mechanics by which this book came together. And it's a big book and dense in terms of the amount of material that it presents and, and, and is covered. It's really a very impressive effort by you and your co-author, uh, Stephen Bright, uh, tell us more about your connection with Stephen Bright and the way in which the two of you collaborated on crafting this book. Sure. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of material. Well, there's a lot of material because there's a lot that's wrong with the criminal legal system. And it's dense because, uh, well, it's dense because there's a lot that's wrong with the criminal legal system, and our editor wanted it not to be a 500-page book. So the truth is our first draft was, I think, about 130,000 words, and the final book is about 80,000. So we, mm. we ended up um, cutting about one-third of the, of the manuscript. And so it's a... The book was, you know, it was a, a pleasure to write. It was also a challenge because and there's, there's so much to say, and there's so many stories. So, for example, in the chapter on, on the right to counsel, one of the things that, you know, you probably remember if you've read the chapter, 
is the number of different ways in which people have bad lawyers. There are drunk lawyers, there are sleeping lawyers, there are lawyers who are addicted to drugs, there are lawyers who are having sexual affairs with um, judges <laughs> um, and, and so on. So there are, just, there are so many stories. And so a lot of the, you know, I don't know the challenge, but a lot of the crafting of the book was making a, you know, a narrative or bringing these into a, a uh, having an organizing structure as opposed to just making it, you know, 100 anecdotes about bad lawyers, which one could, certainly could do. Um, so a lot of it was, um, some of it was drawing on articles that, that Steve has written in the past, but a lot of it was thinking, how can we best, like we know a lot about the problem of the right to counsel, we know a lot about the problem of jury discrimination, but how can we draw readers in with a story? So most of the chapters begin with a single case where we try to highlight the problem. And then we want to explain um, why this problem persists. And I say that because these problems are so um, obvious, right? So that, that's why the, title has the, the subtitle has the word persistence in it. It's, it is obvious to anyone who has set foot in a criminal courtroom that poor people and rich people do not get anything like um, equal treatment before the law. It's been obvious for decades. We have Supreme Court pronouncements saying, you know, everyone threatened with the loss of liberty has the right to a lawyer. Um, but yet, but yet the situation hasn't improved all that much in the past few decades. So some, in each chapter, we try to you know, draw the reader in, highlight the problem, show the scale of it, and also explain why this hasn't been fixed. And then, to the extent that it's justified, talk about the progress that has been made. Because, you know, in all of these issues, there has been progress, but it's not, it's not a one-way, one-way trend. Um, you know, the, in, in some political climates... There'll be more funding for public defenders, and then when the budgets are tight, it gets cut. And the same the same uh, story happens in, in many different areas of the law. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with James Kwok, who is co-author with Stephen Bright of a new book called The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. I can't go any further without uh, asking you, to explain uh, the marvelous, intriguing title of the book, The Fear of Too Much Justice. Uh, the credit for those words goes to uh, a former uh, U.S. Supreme Court justice, one William Brennan. Uh, explain the circumstances under which Justice Brennan uh, uttered the phrase, A Fear of Too Much Justice, back in 1987. Sure. So the title... Um I think it's a very, it's a very um, eloquent title, but as you, you know, as you've noted, it takes a bit of explanation. So Justice Brennan used this phrase in the, in the context of a case, McCleskey v. Kemp, uh, which was decided in 1987, one of the dark days of Supreme Court history. So um, Warren McCleskey was a black man who had been sentenced to death for murdering a white, um, I believe a woman, I'm not sure, certainly a white person in, in Georgia. And, and this was this was at a time, so the death penalty had been essentially suspended by the Supreme Court in the 1970s, in part because it said the application of the 
death penalty is highly arbitrary. You know, there are many, many homicides, a tiny fraction of the, the perpetrators have been sentenced to death. The death penalty was resumed in 1977. By 1987, it was very clear that uh, the death penalty was still arbitrary, in particular because it was being applied in a racially, racially discriminatory fashion. Uh, most, obviously, um, people who killed white people were more likely to get the death penalty than people who killed black people. Uh, there was also evidence that um, black defendants were, being, were getting the death penalty more than white defendants. So in McCluskey's case, his lawyers um, commissioned a statistical study of essentially every, I think, every murder case in Georgia in the past 10 years and provided compelling statistical evidence that of what I had just said, right, that the death penalty was being applied in a racially discriminatory manner, which is both, um, you know, a violation of the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause and also a violation of the Eighth Amendment, uh, against cruel and unusual punishment. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four vote, um, upheld McCluskey's death penalty. And they did not say, they did not say the statistics are wrong, they did not say, they did not deny that there was um, a discriminatory application. Essentially, they said it didn't matter, because they said McCluskey still had to prove that in his case, the judge or the prosecutors or the jury were racially biased against him. They said it's not enough to show that as a system, um, the death penalty is racially discriminatory. And one of the majority's arguments was, well, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to overturn a death penalty because of racial discrimination, we might have to start looking at life sentences. And if we're going to look at racial discrimination, we might have to look, for example, at gender discrimination. So, you know, women might come along and say that they're being treated differently. And we don't want to go that far. And so that is what Justice Brennan described as the fear of too much justice. The idea that, well, if we, if, we, if we have justice in this area, we're going to have to have justice in these other areas, and that's just too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, you know, obviously that's ridiculous. There can, never be, <laughs> there can never be too much justice. And so that's a long story, but we think it applies not just to the death penalty. It applies in other areas of law, particularly to the Supreme Court, which um, often seems to try to find ways to limit the application of, of justice, so to speak. Um, one, one issue that's come up recently is, you know, essentially with, with people who have claims of innocence decades after they were convicted, the Supreme Court has found ways to say, um, essentially for procedural reasons, you know, you can't, you can't make that claim anymore, or you can't have a hearing to explore that claim. And, um, you know, this has nothing to do with the right outcome or, or achieving justice. This is purely a way of kind of limiting the scope of the courts to fix problems that the courts created themselves. Hmm. Back to that Supreme Court uh, ruling in 1987, where uh, the the title of your book actually you know springs out of yeah. comments from from William Brennan. I have to say that I, I appreciated the fact that you included uh, some of what was said on behalf of the majority ruling, what was said by Justice Lewis Powell, and and I think you you very fairly characterized what he was saying, which is essentially, if we go here. In this particular case, it's going to, in a sense, open up a complicated 
can of worms, and then we're going to have to explore unfairness or disparities in all of these other areas, and and that's just more than we want to take on. And I was really taken aback that that he spelled that out so clearly. Uh, I mean, I mean, I was c- kind of shocked. Uh, that I mean, I I would have thought that it would have been couched in language somehow veiling what this ruling was all about, but. Uh, Evidently, uh, Justice Powell did not see the need to uh, to uh, veil any of this behind kind of high-sounding principles. He really, I mean, at least he gets points for honesty in a sense, uh, even if, in, yeah. it, to, at least in the minds of many, this was quite a shocking ruling. Yeah, I think that one thing that um, perhaps is less well understood about the Supreme Court is that and by extension, you know, American law in general. The Supreme Court, um, rightly or wrongly, I mean, I, I think wrongly, um, places a pretty high value on things like efficiency and particularly finality. So finality is a word you will hear the prosecution using basically any time that a defendant is challenging a conviction. Um, especially on later rounds of appeal. So say, you know, it's important for the legal system to come to outcomes swiftly and to basically stick to those outcomes so that people can have, uh, you know, I can't make this argument very well because they don't believe it, but, you know, so people can have confidence in the workings of the legal system, right? Um, which I just don't think makes sense, right? I mean, so people people right now, I think, do not have a lot of confidence, um, well, people who pay attention do not have a lot of confidence in the criminal courts because of, uh, I believe we are now in thousands of exonerations, including hundreds of people who had been um, who had been sentenced to death. Um, but but the Supreme Court holds up these these other values, which are essentially that you know we have a process, the process is certain rules, um, we have to follow the rules, um, and the rules have to um, the rules have to be designed in such a way so that appeals can't go on forever, and so on. That's the that's the, that's the. I guess that's the argument you hear on the other side. Um, I think you know, especially when it comes to people's lives, or also, you know, many of these cases that we're talking about are cases where people have plausible claims of innocence. What that means is, if they're innocent, then somebody else out there committed the murder. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, you can tell I don't have a lot of sympathy for this position, but this is a this is a one of the things that the current Supreme Court. Right. And of course, the point gets made in your book that when we are talking about wrongful convictions, and of course, they they obviously do occur, uh, it's not just a matter of a wrong being done to the person wrongfully convicted, but there's also an actual perpetrator out there who we presume has not been apprehended and and brought to justice. And so so even if one does not feel empathy or sympathy or concern uh, for, 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 in a sense, this kind of mistreatment uh, in, in wrongful convictions, uh, one would hope you'd at least care about wrongdoers out there who should be brought to justice. Yes, exactly. Yeah. One last thing uh, in this matter of the Supreme Court, and then I want to really dig into some other specifics with your book. Sure. Uh, the first thing you quote Justice Lewis Powell saying in this 1987 ruling uh, in the case of 
of, uh, of Warren McCleskey. He says, disparities in sentencing are an inevitable part of our criminal justice system. I wonder if you would mind just taking that up for a moment. Uh, to my amateur eye, there is some truth behind those words. I mean, uh, short of artificial intelligence or some other entity kind of entering the picture, we are talking about an inevitably fallible system because it involves fallible human beings, including you and me. Uh, So uh, is it... Is it even reasonable to to ponder uh, a criminal justice system without disparities of one kind or another? And to what extent can we live with disparities? And and if so, what kind of disparities can we tolerate? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, yes, there's certainly going to be uh, disparities um, simply because of, you know, if nothing else, statistical variation. Um, You know, cases come up different people, different facts, different different uh, jurisdictions, different judges. Um, they're not going to be treated all the same way. Um, just a quick note, I mean, some people might think the answer to this is uh, taking discussion away from judges, so essentially just like mandatory sentences for all, uh, mandatory six sentences for all crimes. Um, that, I, I don't think that would be a good outcome, and, and it actually brings up another point, which is that the prosecutors would still get to decide which which laws they use to charge criminals for the same act. So I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, I think that so so yeah, you're never going to have a system in which every every punishment exactly fits the culpability of the victim and, and his or her criminal background. I think that you know one thing about U.S. law in general, however, is that we've decided. The certain disparities we're willing to tolerate and others were not. And the 14th Amendment says that one of the ones we're not willing to tolerate is disparity on the basis of race, race, national origin, etc. Um, so, brief aside, so in general, in under um, constitutional law, when someone makes a claim of unequal treatment, how seriously that claim is taken um, depends on the basis for the claim. So if you claim that you are unequally treated by a government agency because of your race, that claim um, gets taken very seriously, and, it, and the, uh, essentially the, the government has to prove that they did not discriminate you against you on the basis of race. If you claim that you were treated unequally because you were born on a Tuesday, um, you're going to lose. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> so in general, in constitutional law, we recognize that um, it's kind of impossible to treat all people exactly equally. But because of our nation's history, we know we have a particularly bad track record when it comes to race, and we should watch out for that. Um, I mean, to put it in another context, for example, you can't discriminate in housing on the basis of race and or in employment and a plaintiff can actually bring a lawsuit by pointing to statistical disparities um, they don't have to show uh, at, at the beginning of the case they don't have to show that you discriminated they don't have to find an email right in which they like, called you a racial slur you can just say like um, black people 
um, are much less likely to be allowed to live in this housing complex, for example, um, which is an argument that the Supreme Court ruled out in the death sentence context in, uh, in McCluskey. So to come back to your question, I think that, um, yes, it's true that we can't, uh, we can't, the legal system does tolerate certain kinds of disparities, but the one, literally the one that we are supposed to be most attentive to is disparities on the basis of race. And that's where the Supreme Court failed in, in McCluskey. Um, the thing I said I would come back to about prosecutorial discussion is that one of the things that the Supreme Court says in McCluskey is that, you know, sentencing um, depends on the judge. It largely depends, however, on the prosecutor. If you just take a simple case of death, death penalties, um, many murders are theoretically eligible for the death penalty. The prosecutor decides which ones, in which cases they actually want to get the death penalty. And so the Supreme Court has said, you know, there are going to be disparities. Another thing that says we have to let prosecutors have discussion. But again, the statistics show that this discussion is being used systematically against black people. And that is, you know, that's a disparity. That, that's a use of prosecutorial discussion that we should not be willing to tolerate. We're speaking with James Kwok, and we're talking about the book he co-authored with Stephen B. Bright called The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. Uh, You've just touched on one of the specific matters uh, about which uh, you and your co-author have uh, grave concern, uh, because you spend quite a long time talking about... uh, what I think you regard as the undue power and influence of prosecutors and uh, maybe what is characterized at one point as the disparity between the power and resources of the prosecutor versus the defense attorney. Uh, Spell out for our listeners the most significant of those disparities and also how those disparities have have come to be present in our criminal justice system to such a large extent? Sure. Yeah, so the first two chapters of the book have to be introduction. One is about the power of the prosecutor, and the second is about the right to counsel. So these, these go together. So um, in answering your question, it's kind of, those are kind of two sides of the coin. Um, prosecutors in this country have a lot of resources. Um, it's they don't have unlimited resources. They don't have every every uh, toy that they might want. Um, but for example, when it comes to investigating the case, they can draw basically they can draw on the powers of law enforcement in this country to investigate the case. Investigate the case. Uh, by contrast, you know, if the if the defense attorney wants to mount a defense, I'm claiming that his or her client did not actually do it. Um, they do not have the resources or very often do not have sufficient resources to, to reinvestigate the case. And they also don't have access to the, um, to the work done by the police and to the prosecution files with uh, certain minor exceptions. Um, more generally, I think the, let me see. So the, the prosecutor has, I'll talk about two more things. The prosecutor has an enormous amount of power because they are the ones who decide what charges to bring against the 
the accused person. Um, so a given action by a person, assuming that they did it, can be charged under different statutes. Um, and then there are enhancements. So, for example, if you do something with a gun, in many circumstances, you could get uh, more severe penalty than if you do the same thing without a gun. Whether or not you use the gun, you just have a gun like, in your pocket. Um, and the prosecutors decide whether or not they're going to seek those enhancements. So, um, so this is this is you know one aspect of the discussion of the prosecutors, and they can you know they can go to the defendant and say, I'm going to charge you with X Y Z, you know PQRS, and if you're convicted, you're going to get 38 years in jail. Um, but if I drop PQRS and only charge you with uh, X Y and Z, you'll get six years. And, um, you know, faced with those, faced with the ability of the prosecutor to threaten that, that penalty, many people will take the plea bargain. And then the flip side of this is that uh, in most cases, uh, poor people, and, and we have to remember most of the people charged with clients are poor and can't afford law lawyers, um, so are supposed to have lawyers. But in most cases, these lawyers are... Um, either not very good or extremely overworked. Um, so, and why is this? It's because although the Supreme Court has said poor people accused of crimes who might lose their liberty have the right to a lawyer, it, it never figured out how to pay for this. So essentially all the states and counties and cities were left on their own to figure out how to do this. Many states have statewide public defender systems, which on paper is the best way to do it. But those public defender systems are generally underfunded because simply because budgets are tight. And um, as Robert F. Kennedy said 50 years ago, 60 years ago this year, uh, the poor person accused of crime has no lobby. Um, it's not a constituency that uh, politicians um, really care about. Um, so what happens is the prosecutor comes to the defense attorney who has had almost no opportunity to research the case and understand what defense he might be able to mount and says, look, if this goes to trial, I'm probably going to win. The client's going away for more than 30 years. Um, if it doesn't go to trial, I'm a busy man. I'd rather not go to trial. Uh, if you accept the plea bargain, you know, I'll drop these charges and your client will be out within less than 10 years. And then the defense attorney um, very often just recommends to the client to, to take the deal because they don't have the time to do a better job. So, um, part of it is the power of the prosecution to dictate the charges and dictate the sentence, and part of it is the the lack of funding of defense attorneys to enable them to do an effective job. Mm. Your book uh, also recounts uh, at least a few examples in which uh, a, a, a someone who cannot afford to hire an attorney is is uh, given an attorney who has little or no experience whatsoever when it comes to the criminal courts. I mean, yeah. and of course, attorneys come in all shapes and sizes and specialties. And and uh, that was kind of amazing to me that that uh, that an attorney that that probably has essentially no business uh, sitting in the defender's chair defending someone in a criminal court because they simply have no experience doing that somehow finds their way 
uh, into yeah. that situation. I mean, are those situations in which someone is sort of pressured or forced to, 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 to take that on for some reason? Or, I mean, it's just kind of amazing yeah. to think of a of an attorney allowing themselves to be placed in that kind of position. Yeah, so so usually not, I'll say, although it does happen. Um, there have been um, um, some jurisdictions in recent memory where uh, lawyers were first forced to take cases, essentially as an obligation of being lawyers. Um, that's that's not the major problem. So there are two. I think there are, there are two major problems here. One is so I just said that that many states have uh, statewide public defender programs. Uh, some do not, and they leave it up to the counties. And so some counties might have a public defender program. Uh, some will rely exclusively on what's called appointed counsel. So what that means is that the judge essentially has a list of lawyers who are willing to take on uh, criminal cases for indigent, indigent accused people for a small amount of money. So it could be a flat fee. So it could be, you know, $5,000 for a penalty, penalty, fel- sorry, felony, $1,000 for misdemeanor. It might be an hourly rate, which in general will be very low. Um, so uh, these are people who, I mean, I don't want to be too unfair, I'll just quote one, I believe it was a prosecutor in Virginia said, basically you're getting people who are either just out of law school and need, you know, need to get practice, or you're getting people who can't find better work. Um, so in jurisdictions that rely on appointed counsel, often you're getting lawyers that are just not, uh, not that good. Uh, related problems, so I'll mention right now, so Georgia has a public defender system, in large part because of Steve Bight, who campaigned for it when, uh, 20 years ago. But in many uh, criminal cases, there are multiple defendants. And in the case of multiple defendants, typically a single law firm is not allowed to represent more than one defendant because the defendant's interests are not necessarily the same. Most notably, one of them might testify against the other. Um, so that means that the public defender's office can only represent one of the defendants. In Georgia right now, I believe there are hundreds, low number of hundreds, of people who in jail who do not have lawyers because um, the system for providing lawyers to people who, are, who can't be defended by the public defender's office doesn't work very well. Um, so there are a number of reasons that uh, that, that can happen. Um, and then, last thing I'll say is that, you know, we, we start the, the, um, the book with the case of Glenn Ford, who was represented by, I think, an oil and gas lawyer in a death penalty case. And the other fundamental problem here is that the Supreme Court said you have the right to a lawyer in the 1960s. But it's not clear how good that lawyer had to be. In the 1980s, there was a case called Strickland, in which they said, um, I, I won't go into details. Essentially, they set a very low, bo- low bar um, for the standard that a lawyer has to meet. So if you are represented by an incompetent attorney, attorney, you can later appeal and say, my attorney was ineffective. But those claims are, it's very hard to win on those claims um, because a lawyer simply doing a bad job generally does not, does not qualify as ineffective. Hmm. So 
again, a lot of this is states refusing to fund the public defender systems, and a lot of it is the Supreme Court letting them do that. I wanted to briefly mention that we had a, a, a news story here within the last several weeks, and I'm just going to quote this story, which was actually broken by, by the radio station here. Uh, in a highly unusual move, a Racine judge lowered bail to a supposedly manageable amount for a defendant in a first-degree intentional homicide case. Uh, this 19-year-old has been sitting in jail for two years without representation. Neither the public defender's office or the county court system have been able to find an attorney willing to take the case for the going rates. And this judge then said he felt he had little choice but to lower the bond amount from $250,000 to $25,000. The lower amount is what Mm -hmm. this defendant's mother said she would be able to post. Uh, so this is, in, in some respects, kind of a flip side of, of much of what you describe in the book, but it points to the very same problem, that when we construct a system but don't adequately fund it or, or <laughs> adequately organize it, uh, then we're left with all kinds of ways in which the system begins uh, to fail those it is designed to serve. Yeah, I mean, so I respect the judge for making that, that decision in that case, which, um, un, uh, you know, undoubtedly was unpopular with, with many people. Um, but, um, you know, <laughs> we're not supposed to imprison people. You know, we, we're supposed to presume people are innocent. We're not supposed to imprison people uh, indefinitely unless they've been convicted of something. Um, now, we do violate that that principle on, on a massive scale in this country. I believe in in the United States as a whole, something like two thirds of all people in jail have not been convicted of anything. They are awaiting awaiting trial, and most of them will never get a trial. Most of them will plead guilty to get out of in order to get out of jail. Um, now, um, I don't know Wisconsin's bail laws um, in in particular, but uh, you know the idea of a two hundred fifty thousand dollar bond is that for whatever reason, we don't really want this person to be out on the streets until trial. Um, but, but you know, the judge realized um, you can't keep someone in jail. <laughs> you can't keep someone in jail indefinitely um, if, they haven't, if they haven't been convicted of anything and there's no viable path to convicting them of someone because they can't, they can't find a, a lawyer to represent them. Um, you, you may know, I don't know why the public defender's office wouldn't be able to defend uh, this person, my best guess is that there's a co co defendant. Well, at any rate, uh, this is one of the issues uh, raised in your book, and uh, there are a number of others that we'll at least touch on briefly. One of them uh, involves judges and the discretion that that many judges have. And I, I did want to ask you about one thing that is maybe potentially a little confusing. Your book, as it paints some of these most serious issues also points to certain places in our country where they where we'll, where we will really see some of these issues playing out in in rather drastic dramatic fashion for instance the mm-hmm. high incidence of 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 the death penalty being sought in certain cases and in ways that does not seem uh to be uh you know necessarily fair to all parties uh or or other instances of, of, of what we might think of as, as questionable practices, but they will be in a particular county. 
and and it yeah. suggests that that maybe some of the most acute problems that we're seeing in our criminal justice system uh, can stem from a particular judge or a particular prosecutor. Uh, but on the other hand, much of what your book talks about seems to be talking about problems playing out on an epic canvas. I mean, widespread problems throughout our, our, our criminal justice system. Are both of these things true? Yeah, I think they are both true. Um, so the so to the first point, um, prosecutors, as I said before, have a tremendous amount of discretion, most notably, or not, perhaps most remarkably, in the case of the, the death penalty. So the, the death penalty is probably where you see the most extreme disparities, extreme geographical disparities. Um, so um, I, I forget the exact, exact numbers, but you know something like 2% of all counties in the United States are responsible for over half of all executions um, in the past, uh, past 50 years. And that is because um, the decision to seek the death penalty is generally made by the district attorney, generally a white man, um, and with no, there are no, in most states, there's no, there are no statewide guidelines about when you should seek the death penalty or not. So, I mean, the blunt way to put it is some people dislike the death penalty more than others. Um, and so that I think is largely because of the, the prosecutors, um, as we do discuss in the, in the book, there are instances of, uh, complicity between prosecutors and judges. In most cases, that complicity is completely legal. Um, it's a combination of the fact that the, pros- the judges are often former prosecutors, um, they are political allies, they are friends, etc. Um, and that's in part a, a function of the fact that in most of this country, judges are elected, and being a district attorney is a great way to get yourself elected judge, especially in a country in most of which is, you know, afraid of crime. Um, other issues play out on a broader scale. I would say other issues where um, state law is is more important. So, for example, um, um, bail laws, for example. Um, so bail laws are set usually on the state level. And bail is an important issue. It's, now, bail has gotten a lot of press in the past five to ten years, rightfully. It's a very important issue at the other end of the spectrum. So we're not talking about the death penalty here. We're talking about relatively small crimes where even if you were convicted, you would be unlikely to serve more than, say, six months. Um, so really the most important thing in these cases is whether you can make bail or not. Because if you can make bail, you can keep your job, you can... You can support your family, you can get your medicine, you can go on with your life. You may plead guilty later. Um, you have more leverage because you you have more leverage against the prosecutor because you are going on with your life. Um, maybe you can plead to a misdemeanor instead of a felony, and your life goes on. Whereas if you can't make bail, you're stuck in jail, you lose your job, you get evicted from your house, you can't get your medicine, um, you have less leverage against the prosecutor, you plead guilty to a felony, and then bad things happen. Um, and so bail laws are generally set on the, the state level. Some places have fixed bail schedules. They just say, for this crime, the bail is this much. 
that is pretty clearly unconstitutional. But but unless um, you know, unless somebody has actually sued and won a case, that that could still be the law. So I think that you know the, the criminal legal system. There are many different jurisdictions. There are many different kinds of cases we're talking about, and in some instances, one person can have a can have a huge impact. Um, we've seen that, you know, for good and for bad. We've seen with the rise of, of progressive prosecutors, um, but other problems are just say more systemic. Hmm. Yeah, and that's one thing you mentioned, of course, too, that in the majority of states, the vast majority of states, prosecutors are elected and most yeah. run unopposed, and uh, that is, uh, you know, part of you know, kind of the uh, the the issue that we are are talking about. We want to say that yeah. your book goes on to explore the whole matter of whitewashing juries. Uh, something which is not supposed to happen and yet does uh, happen, and your book raises certain possibilities of of of, of dealing with that uh, reality. Uh, the matter of mental illness and how to assess that uh, is is also uh, touched on. Uh, in our last couple of minutes, uh, I want you to just talk about one of the uh, central principles of your book, which is that to uh, adapt some of the uh, reforms that uh, that you and your co-author uh, espouse, that we are not talking about then creating a scenario in which criminals run rampant and crime rates rise and so on, that in fact just the opposite is almost certainly to occur. That is, when we dispense true and fair justice even-handedly in our criminal justice system, when it functions better, we are going to have a safer country for all of us. Yeah, thank you. So I think there are a couple of um, things to say about that. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, neither Steve nor I thinks that, you know, there should be no criminal justice system or that, you know, nobody should ever go to jail. We, we don't, neither, neither Steve nor I uh, feels that way. But we have a system right now that is so heavily towards punishment that I believe it is actually making our country less safe. And there are two main reasons for this, and they're both very simple to understand. Uh, One is that the more that you punish people and lock them up and keep them in prison, uh, two things happen. One is that they're less likely to be able to regain uh, steady employment because uh, one thing we haven't discussed and, and honestly is not discussed a lot in the book is the set of collateral consequences that, that uh, accrue when you're convicted, especially of assault, um, you know, housing restrictions, and, um, all, all sorts of, uh, you know, it gets harder to get a job and so on. And the other thing that happens is there's a, uh, there's a what people call a criminogenic influence of being in prison. Um, people who spend time in prison compared to people who don't spend time in prison for the, with the same background, they're more likely to commit crimes later in the future. And then the second factor, which, um, you know, has, has received some attention in the past 10 years. So, um, you know, homicide rates uh, have gone up in certain places in the country. Um, in, there have been certain spikes in the past uh, several years. And there's been a lot of debate about why that's happened. And I'm not an expert in this field. I've, I've read a lot about it, and I think that one of the, you know, the two major uh, causal factors behind this, one is more guns. Uh, We don't need to go into that in much detail, but, you know, certainly 
2020. It's a huge increase in gun purchases. And the other one that's more interesting is that you often see upticks in crime, in violent crime, um, in areas where there's a uh, severe drop in in um, trust in the police and law enforcement system. So particularly like Ferguson, after the shooting of Michael Brown, uh, people just stopped calling 911 because they didn't trust the police and they didn't trust they didn't trust the law enforcement system and the, and the courts to do their job to catch perpetrators and treat them fairly. And we've had, in many communities, we've had a breakdown of confidence in, in, the, in law enforcement and, and the courts. And just to, uh, why does that matter? Because if you're a detective investing a homicide, you need to, the trust of, the, of people to talk to you. And when that trust breaks down, it's very different to, to, difficult to, to clear, clear cases. So these are two reasons, I'm sure there are others, why I think the, the excess of punishment that we have in this country is, 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 um, is um, backfiring and in, in some cases is, is creating more crime, not less. Your book is uh, uh, very, very well written, and uh, I hope a lot of people will seek it out to uh, help explore some of these really important issues. The book is again titled The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts, published by the New Press, and uh, one of its authors, James Kwok. James Kwok, thank you so much for being my morning show guest today. I uh, was honored to speak with you. Best wishes. Thank you, Sam. here. It's been a pleasure.